medley to head into our sermon this morning for this very simple reason. I'm confident that many, if not all, uh, carried some burden from this past week or even this morning into our worship today. And it's heavy. Hymns like that, medleys of hymns like that, when we hear the tune and we read the words, uh, give us confidence to be able to take those burdens and, and place them in the Lord's care, to relieve our hearts of life's tensions for a moment, uh, so we can open up our hearts to hearing God's words. I hope that helped you in that way. It did me, uh, as we all carry our own heavinesses into worship each week. John chapter 5. We're going to finish this morning preaching on the third of God's witnesses to the veracity of the deity of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus commenced in his Galilean ministry and very quickly we find him in Jerusalem for the festivals, the feasts of the Jews. And we still find him here in Jerusalem. Chapters, chapter 5 really is um, time spent in that city during these feasts. And we find it to be a robust chapter of the Lord Jesus Christ himself telling religious unbelief that he's God and, and then speaking of God, his fathers, three witnesses of his own deity, and this is where we find the threats upon Jesus' life begin, twice in chapter 5. Um, they seek to seize him and kill him, and then we understand that for the next three years, Jesus lives under the threat of death in his whole public ministry, but he finishes this time in Jerusalem in chapter 5, and where we begin next week in chapter 6, we find him again in his Galilean ministry, and we'll find him there for some time as we continue on. But for today, we want to look at verses 39 to 46. And let's read these verses uh, just for review as we continue. Jesus tells the religious unbelief, and by the way, every time you see the word Jews here, he's specifically speaking to the religious leaders, not to the whole nation, okay? Anytime you see, or most of the time that you see the Apostle John used that term Jews. That's who he's speaking to. And that's who he's speaking to here. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you might have eternal life or might have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you're going to receive them. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory? And by the way, you can underscore that word glory. That word glory, Jesus is in reference to himself. You don't receive me because I am the glory of the Father that is from the one and only God. 
Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The ultimate rejection of the scripture's revelation of Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is the core problem, the third core problem here, of the religious Jews in Israel. The scriptures are the third and final witness of the Father that Jesus proclaims here of his own deity. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but the phrase that jumps out to me in this text, a number of them do, we'll go through all of them this morning, is really found in verse 40. It says, you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. One of the greatest truths of the Bible that must be embraced by faith is that man who remains in unbelief is unwilling to come to God in salvation through Jesus Christ, his son. That's really the story of scripture. God offers salvation and man rejects it. Why? Do some believe and some don't? Salvation is totally of God and condemnation is all of men. Try to remember that. God prepared heaven for those who would repent and believe and he's prepared hell for Satan and his fallen angels. And yet that's where man sentences himself when he rejects Jesus Christ as the son of God. God says he sent Jesus to die for the whole world and that Jesus is the satisfaction of God's wrath upon the whole of human creation. Paul says there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And the salvation of men and women was determined in eternity past. The Bible says nothing of their condemnation. But scripture is replete with information that eternal hell and condemnation is the portion of all those who reject the promise of a coming Messiah in the Old Testament, all those who reject God's word in flesh, Jesus Christ, even in the text that we're reading and studying this morning. The greatest theologians on earth have attempted to fully understand the scriptural realities of salvation and condemnation, and they just fully can't. I think this is what Paul refers to as the mystery of the gospel. We are confident that God's arm is not too short, that it cannot save, and we know that condemnation, hell, and ultimately the lake of fire is the portion of those who just simply reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Remember the reason for the writing of the Gospel of John. All these things were written to us and for us about the Son of God that you might believe and that in believing you might have life through his name. And folks, it's really that simple. Jesus is enough to save. Anything added to him or taken away from him is a false gospel. Contained in the Bible alone are the answers to eternal life, life without end, enjoyed in the presence of the Godhead and his children forever. So I would ask you to not fall into the company described in verse 40 
In Judgment Day, you don't ever want to be labeled as the person who was unwilling to come to Jesus as the Son of God. Having heard from two of the father's testimonies of his son, Jesus' work and the father's testimony, John announces the testimony of the scriptures that testify of the deity of Christ, beginning here in verse 39. And attached to the announcement of this third witness is a declaration of Jesus' composite frustration. We've already discussed that. They've enjoyed verification after verification, sign after sign, miracle after miracle, the very presence of God among them. And they're still unwilling to come. Nonetheless, Jesus continues to relay this third testimony by saying, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Let's explore that here for a few minutes this morning. Now, we know that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The Lord has established that through the hand of the Apostle Paul. The scriptures are the word of God in written form to us to point us to repentance of faith in faith alone in the word of God in flesh, Jesus Christ. The scriptures themselves don't save us. Jesus does. The whole of the law that's going to be referred to here as the scriptures, Paul says, was given to us by God. It's a witness of God. All that Moses wrote in the first five books of the Old Testament were given to us to point us to be our schoolmaster unto Christ. The Bible doesn't save. Jesus saves. We know the Bible is, aside from Christ, our greatest possession, isn't it? God used the word of God to point us to our need for him. And it sufficiently did so. But only Jesus sufficiently and completely saves. I can remember on our honeymoon, my wife and I went Dutch. That was against the traditional values that I was taught. Um, But... The only money I had to, I had to take her somewhere um, wasn't very intriguing to her, so she, she pitched the idea of going Dutch. So she got out of college two years before I did and got a job, so um, I relinquished and said, okay, we'll go Dutch, so let's go overseas, so we did. Now, she was very grateful for anything I would have given her, I'm sure, but uh, being her, she always have great creative suggestions, and um, we have no regrets. So we went to Europe. Um, she had planned out a visit to the, the London History Museum. Anyone ever been there? Fascinating place. Fascinating place. I quickly scurried to um, Old Testament and New Testament history that is in that museum. I came across a little section on the history of the Bible and the uh, only original 
volume. It's actually the oldest volume of the Bible that we have in complete form. It's called this Codex Sinaiticus, and it really is a compilation of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, the Septuagint translated, well, it's the Septuagint, the Old Testament Hebrew translation of the Greek language, and all of the New Testament compiled, and it was done so by the fourth century. I came across this. I had just recently graduated from a portion of my seminary. We had actually studied this book and its significance to Christian history. So I was really intrigued and spent a long time in this particular room around this particular volume that was under protected glass in the London Museum. It's a manuscript of the Christian Bible contains the earliest and complete copy of the Christian New Testament. By the way, it actually has its own website. It's a really cool website. So if you want to go, it's just codexsinaiticus.com. It's a fascinating, don't go there now. Uh, you go there later. The handwritten text is in Greek. The New Testament appears in the original vernacular language, the Koine Greek in the Old Testament in the version known as the Septuagint. It was adopted by early Greek-speaking Christians. In the Codex, which just simply means book, this was the first time in history we were moving from scrolls to layered pages that they called codexes or books. Right. Um, you can even see within the Codex Sinaiticus that they were heavily annotated even down to the letter because people that were used of God to miraculously preserve the truth of Scripture were compelled to make sure that it was as accurate as possibly could be. The significance of the Codex Sinaiticus for the reconstruction of the Christian's Bible original text was significant in the history of the Bible and the history of the Western bookmaking world. It's just immense. Study it on your own time. But again, having studied this volume and its historic significance in seminary, I stood over it and gazed at it for quite a long time. Um, my wife was <clears throat> in the room adjacent to me studying uh, ancient obelisks that had, in scripture, uh, had, had inscribed upon them or chiseled into them uh, names of Old Testament kings that were discovered. It's just a fascinating Old Testament room she was over there, and I had found this, and I said, Ron, you got to get over here. She's like, shh, it's a museum. And I said, you got to see this. Come here, come here. Um, and shh, again. After I settled down, I tried to read even some of that which I had taken Greek courses to understand, and was pretty successful. Um, and the first question I asked her, I said, I wonder what this is worth. You know? And she said, I'm imagining because it's in this museum, no one's put a price tag on it because it's priceless. Well, you can find a written version of Codex Sinaiticus on a Walmart's website for $16.54. You can find an actual facsimile edition of it from Christian book distributors for $499. But the original, invaluable, invaluable. 
When we read here in verse 39 that the Jews, the religious leaders, search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. You find that the religious leaders greatly valued the Torah. It was priceless to them. Therefore, they searched it. John says here they diligently searched. The Hebrew word would be here daras, which is a technical term used to refer to their study and exposition of the law of Moses and the oral traditions that were handed down through generations in the Talmud, which would have been the Jewish written tradition. Their whole goal was acceptance from God through their thorough investigation of the scriptures. They were seeking eternal life through their mere study. As a matter of fact, one historic Jewish school of thought, the Hillel school of thought, says in their writings, in Pirkei Abbas, chapter 2 and verse 7, the more the study of the law, the more life. And that if man gains for himself words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. So what's Jesus' conclusion to the purpose of the law these religious ones so cherish? It's found in the second part of verse 41. In these scriptures that you value and you study and you find eternal life in the written page, these words testify of who? Of me, Jesus says. He's saying you've exposited all the words of Moses and you've missed their actual message. Moses wrote about me. He goes on to say in verse 46 that we read, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. Verse 47, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? But if you look back with me at verse 45, he says, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. Jesus is saying, okay, since you're involved in this thorough, comprehensive understanding of what Moses wrote, and by the way, the Jewish religious leaders would have had the whole Torah memorized. They would have found their eternal salvation, the completion of the memorizing of the first five books of the Old Testament. How grueling of a process would that have been? So in their consumption, their comprehensive consumption and saturation of the book of the law of Moses, they found eternal life, and yet they missed the very message and purpose of why they were written. So Jesus is saying, okay, since your thorough understanding of what Moses wrote is your goal, then your salvation comes through Moses and not me or my father since I am his testimony before you. So at the judgment, this is what Jesus is saying. Take it for what you wish. So at the judgment, if you don't turn and believe in me, Jesus is saying, then there will be someone else there to be your judge and also testimony of who I am. At the final judgment, the great white throne judgment for all resurrected Old Testament religious unbelief individuals, could it be that Moses will step forward from behind the throne 
of Christ and stand witness of the scriptures he wrote that were written to reveal Jesus Christ as the divine son of God. You placed your faith in me and what I wrote, and I wrote so that you placed your faith in him who sits on the throne here. I think with a literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of, Christ, of scriptures, I think that's actually what's going to happen. Jesus said it. They're going to be without excuse in that moment. Jesus would confront religious unbelief in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, when he said, Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doth the will of my Father who is in heaven, he shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and cast out devils in thy name and done many miracles in thy name? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Many works were done by people who knew the law of Moses well. They searched the scriptures diligently as they performed the works, but they never believed. Remember, these were also people that accepted John the Baptist, the first witness of the Father, as the prophet of God. These were people who, like Nicodemus told us in John chapter 3, a religious leader of all leaders in Jerusalem, that they had accepted Jesus as one who had come from God, for no one could do the miracles he did except he be sourced in the Father. And yet they still didn't believe. Do you remember the two, road, two men on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, verse 27? Luke tells us there, then beginning with them as Jesus walked with them in his post-resurrection appearance, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained, he expounded to them the things concerning himself in all of the Torah. Thankfully, those men later at dinner, their eyes were open as to who he was. He was the Jesus of the Torah, the sacrificial lamb of the law of Moses. John really emphasizes the importance of the law in relationship to understanding who Jesus is throughout his whole book. Remember chapter 1 and verse 45? Philip explained to Nathanael that they had finally found him whom Moses and the prophets had written about. In chapter 2 and verse 22, at the Passover and the temple cleansing, we find familiar, similar truth with Nicodemus in chapter 3 and verse 10. Our text this morning, and then in John chapter 20 and verse 9, in a post-resurrection appearance, the disciples at the tomb believed, but even they and their emotion had not connected the situation of the temple cleansing and what they had believed from their scriptures even yet, but they had at least believed that he was the one written about by Moses and the prophets. D.A. Carson says, by predictive prophecy, by type, by revelatory event, and by anticipatory statute, what we call the Old Testament is understood to point to Christ, his ministry, his teaching, his death, and his resurrection. 
Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 13 and chapter 5 and verse 17, Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 7 and verse 10 that he knew that the law was not a life-giving source in itself. He says something similar in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 21. There is no life-giving power in the law of Moses. Romans chapter 10 and verse 4 Paul says, for Christ is the end. He's the telos. That's the Greek word there. He's the goal. He's the purpose for why the law of righteousness was written to everyone who believes. And you remember from when Pastor Mark preached chapter 5, verses 21 to 26, that God granted life-giving power to Jesus, the Son of God alone. Carson goes on to say, if therefore some, want, some of the Jews refuse to come to Jesus for life, that refusal constitutes evidence that they are not reading their scriptures as they were meant to be read. So really, folks, there is no greater arrogance that exists than religious unbelief who has had the Lord Jesus Christ's personage verified for them on so many divine layers. Simply put, Jesus, the Son of God, will never be sufficiently enough for any religion or self-sufficient person or establishment. For them, why would you need the sufficiency of the God-man if you're sufficiently satisfied with your religious traditions and habits? You can have what you want without entrusting yourself to him as he is. So as we head towards the conclusion this morning, we need to examine just a few more words from this passage in verses 41 to 44. It's established that Jesus does not accept human testimony, so why would human glory or praise of men be accepted? We're in a section where Jesus is explaining three testimonies of God. We've noted that. We're in the third. Jesus wants his father to get the glory, not himself. This is a genuine expression of perfect humanity. Jesus was submissive to the will of the father and he desired him to get the praise. Jesus says in verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek glory, seek the glory that is from the one and only God, speaking of himself. We mentioned that in the reading of the text this morning. Jesus knew in his divinity that he was the express image of the glory of the Father. He knew that if they truly accepted God as Father, that they would entrust themselves to Jesus, who is the glory of the Father. And in stating what Jesus does, he proclaims himself to be the God-man. And I've already asked you to cross-reference here next to these verses, John chapter 1 and verse 14, where the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he saw, and we saw his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, Jesus Christ is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. The testimonies of the Father bring glory to him by Christ. So Jesus says in verse 43, I have come in my Father's name. We've proved that through the scriptures, and you do not receive me if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. 
There's always been the habit of religious unbelief to accept the testimony of mere men as compared to receiving the testimony of God. And in so doing, they have no problem welcoming or receiving reciprocal glory from other men and their testimonies of themselves. Just think of modern day religious unbelief and modern cult practices. Religious unbelief and cult habit is to embrace extra revelation other than the scriptures because the scriptures are never enough to fully explore and define the character and nature and person of Jesus Christ. The word of God's never enough to explain him. So they're always looking for more and more and more. Every April, the head prophet of the Mormon church stands and declares a new revelation from God. And every year, it's inscripturated for those people as being equal in authority to what the Bible says, what the Book of Mormon says. The scriptures are never sufficient enough for them as they seek to explain the sufficiency of Christ alone for our salvation. And religion loves to compliment itself. This is a self-perpetuating, uh, self-complimenting, self-saturating thing, you see. And this is what's so hard for even our religious world to understand. They, so, they know so much about God and they know so much about the Bible and their lips serve him, but their hearts are so far from him. And the more their lips serve him, it seems that their hearts get farther away from them, from him until they surrender their hearts to him in belief so that they might have life. Go with me to Matthew 23 real quickly. Let's look at how Jesus describes these fellow rabbis in Matthew chapter 23. This is a more full description of what he says here. They receive glory of themselves and they, they exalt themselves and they put themselves forward before men as vicars for God. Verse four, Matthew 23, they tie up heavy burdens and they lay them on men's shoulders. That sounds like religion, doesn't it? They're awful guilt-trippy. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much of a finger. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries. You know what phylacteries were, right? The Shema of Israel, Deuteronomy 6 held in a little box that was always resting upon their forehead. Do you know what these guys were doing in Jesus' day? They were increasing the dimensions of that box. The farther they went along, the bigger the box got because they found salvation in that box. And the words of Moses contained in that box. Okay? They wanted people to see where their faith rested. And they lengthen the tassels of their garments to the point where they became flowing robes, not just garments that went to their feet, 
The robes would, the tassels would tail behind them so that they would be seen of men. So ultimately, men would look to them as rabbis for all that they knew and they taught. One school, the Hillel school, that salvation was found in what they knew of the scriptures. Jesus goes on. They loved the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. If you went to the agora of this time, they would fully expect the highest, most reverent greeting you could give a human. A bowing of the head. It was a sacred moment for them. And that if you didn't give them that greeting, well... And being called rabbi by men. But then Jesus says, don't be called rabbi, for one is your teacher. That's me. You are all brothers. Do not be, and do not call anyone on earth your father. That pretty much wipes out one whole common religion today, doesn't it? And for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader. That is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve and do what? Give his life a ransom for sin. Mark 10, 45. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Go with me to John chapter 12, the book we're studying as we close this morning. And let's look at verses 42 and 43. We've referenced this in a previous sermon, but I think it... And again, uh, underpins what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 5. In 1242, he says, Nevertheless, many of the rulers did believe in him, but because of the Pharisees, remember we talked about the influence of religious unbelief with the man that was healed at the pool of Bethesda from a 38-year malady. They were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. I think it's good for us as we close this morning to recall together that God's three witnesses, John the Baptist, the son and his works and the scriptures all revealed to us that Jesus Christ is the son of God. As if all that had been revealed to them before God's three witnesses were not enough. But remember, Jesus Christ is to be believed on, the text says, so that you would have life through him. What kind of life? Eternal life. Now hang on with me here. Kids, college kids, people of all ages, hang on with me here. This is fascinating. Eternal life. That's why Jesus came to grant you upon the breathing of your last breath on this earth immediate presence with the Godhead and the saints for all of eternity. That's why.
That eternal life includes so many blessings categorized and cataloged for us in Ephesians 1 and 1 Peter chapter 1. You can read in your own time and these blessings have been subjectively granted to us the moment we're born again. But God gives us eternal life and we need to bask in the glory of that thought for this closing moment. All of the verification layers spelled out for us in the Gospel of John that Jesus Christ and the Son of God are preserved for us that you, every one of you, might have eternal life. John doesn't invest time telling us how to have our best life now. We're never told in the Bible that life realized in the 21st century in the Western Hemisphere is the best life for us. We're never told in the Bible that our chief end is to merely live a healthy life and a happy life. The Bible never promises life on earth without pain and suffering and sickness and agony. The Bible never teaches us that having a full bank account and healthy investment portfolios and big vacations and a college education is assurance of the life that John writes about in this gospel. All the blessings we're granted and the opportunity to achieve them in this lifetime are given to us by God to point us to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ so that we might believe that he's the son of God and in believing we might have life through his name. That's real life for us. And yet we pursue so much and we invest so much of our time achieving for ourselves a quality of life here that does distract us for the very reason why Jesus came in the first place. So much so that you've entrapped yourselves with financial debt through your pursuit of that best life now and layering yourself and lavishing yourself with all these things that are wants and not needs. We've actually invested so much in our life now, we can't even barely reinvest what's God's in Jesus' eternal purpose. He came to give us eternal life and he's resourced us with the ability to give and to worship him in giving unto the cause of other people learning about that life, not our lives. Shame on us if we've encumbered ourselves with so much debt and so much heaviness because of trying to achieve our wants rather than our needs. And by the way, yesterday's needs are today's Yesterday's wants are today's needs. Everything that your parents and grandparents wanted, we, have, we, we think in our generation, we need those wants. And needs are still needs. But think about this. He came to give eternal life, not our best life now. As one heretical teacher in our country teaches all the time, our best life is not now. We are pilgrims on this journey. It's a short journey. Everything that we have and we are is to be invested for eternal purpose, for the proclamation of the gospel and the Savior who can give eternal life.
So parents, as your children are saturated with every good thing your heart's desires to have them, give them, first and always first, let them know that their greatest need is to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Let them know that all the good things given to them by you come from God, including their wants. And those good things are to bring them to look up and realize that without Christ, they can enjoy everything now and be hell damned if they don't see him as Jesus, the Son of God. All the good we have is to point us upward. Paul tells us that in Romans 2. It's the goodness of God that points us to repentance. All God's good is to point us to the one who is eternally good, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All the difficulty, tragedy, and agony that we endure in this world is to remind us that it's broken and temporary and has a shelf life. Our world has an expiration date, friends. Our agony is designed to show us that our world is broken because of sin. My sin, your sin, the sin of the whole world. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to die for that sin and to give you eternal life. Kids, I shook hands Thursday night with a number of men who are making $2 million a month. I shook hands with, with men seven feet, one inch tall that, that if you count the cost of their rings, their watches, their shoes, and their clothing... Each person was probably wearing about $250,000 of stuff on their body. I can't decry them of that. Good for them. But the goodness of God to them is to point them where? Their career has a shelf life, it could be over in a moment. great opportunity and we had some Thursday to talk about eternal life in the midst of them enjoying the best life that people could define in an American society for some sweet people kind people wealthy people talented people but lost people and it's easy to trust in all that stuff as much as it was for religious leaders to trust in the scriptures for their salvation. See, it has nothing to do with what you have and what you don't. It comes down to who do you trust or what do you trust? What is scriptures? What is stuff? but we're to trust in who Jesus is as the Son of God. So if you're in unbelief, my friends, again, it's never due to a lack of evidence, a lack of testimony, a lack of sufficient sacrifice in Christ for your sin, or a lack of simplicity of understanding. We all must do something with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for the simplicity of this text and the manner in which the Apostle John writes. Certainly, we're all without excuse. And I pray as we leave this place of worship this morning and we head out into our communities that we would look at everybody as Jesus does, either lost or found. Really, Lord, there's only two identities in this world. In a world that's seeking to self-identify in a myriad of exhausting ways. You identified people two ways. There's one human race, and that human race is either in unbelief or they believe. As your people, Lord, we have one singular identity. We are no longer Jew or Greek, barbarian or Scythian. We're no longer Croatian or American or Canadian or Texan or Ohioan. We're Christians, period. Because we have been adopted into God's family. From a spiritual sense, Lord, we worship you for that. And as your children, we leave this place with the burden of your son to serve those who need him, to love them, to do good deeds for them, that they might believe what the scriptures say about the Son of God that they would believe on him. That the testimony of our service unto them. We look forward, Lord, to the fruit that you will give, that will remain, as we fully intend to continue to embrace the genuine gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we